We're going to look into Matthew's gospel again. And the passage we will study today is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Let me just put them into context. We are studying Matthew's gospel, a very, very important document given to the burgeoning, small, perhaps struggling churches 30 or 40 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. There must have been times when, because of the pressures they operated under, that they wondered if they had been caught up in some crazy sect that they were, were being taken over by the latest fad. They were into a trendy thing, and it, it really didn't have an awful lot of substance to it. But when they began to read this document that was written for them and circulated among them, they realized that one of the great themes of this document was fulfillment. In other words, Matthew was going out of his way to show the things that were actually happening in their lifetime were actually a fulfillment of what God had been predicting for hundreds of years that he would do. And they were realizing this was not trendy, this was not faddish, this was part and parcel of the great eternal purposes of God. Imagine how that must have given them a sense of belonging, a sense of continuity, a sense of being something greater and grander than themselves. Which led, of course, to the question, well, what was this great and grand thing that they were part of? And the word for that was the kingdom, which is the second key theme of Matthew's gospel. The kingdom means the rule of God being reinstated, being reestablished in the world that he created, but was sold out to the enemy of our souls. And as the scripture says, the whole world lies in the wicked one. Even people who are not theological would have to agree that makes a lot of sense because there is an awful lot of garbage going on in our world at the present time. God says, that's my world, I'm going to get it back. And the business of getting it back is, in biblical terminology, is establishing his kingdom. And so what is happening to this little group of Christians now, as they read Matthew's gospel, is that they realize they're not only part of what God is committed to doing in the long haul, but they realize that what he's committed to doing is establishing his kingdom, and they're invited to be part of it. And they're being challenged to be part of it. And they're challenged to begin to propagate this rule of God in areas of their own lives and in areas of the world around them where it is clearly not the case. And this idea of being initiated into the kingdom and taught and trained to live as if they're part of God's kingdom and to know how to go about propagating this kingdom, there's a word for that, and it's the third key word of Matthew's gospel, discipleship. They were being trained, they were being equipped, they were being introduced to what it meant to live as members of God's kingdom. So the three key themes of Matthew's gospel are fulfillment, kingdom, and discipleship. Now, the disciples of Jesus, that is those who were challenged by him and invited by him to be part of what he was about, they had the opportunity to learn from him, to follow his example and be changed by him. That's the essence of discipleship. And there were two ways in which they learned. They learned by listening to his words 
and they learnt by observing his behavior. Sometimes we catch it through ear gate, sometimes we capture it through eye gate. Sometimes it's what we hear, sometimes it's what we see. That's why in Matthew's gospel, he alternates between statements about what Jesus did and statements about what he said. And the biggest block of his teaching, or what he said, is called the Sermon on the Mount. I introduced that to you the last time I spoke to you. In the section we called the Beatitudes, that is sort of Jesus' prospectus about the way we go about living in the kingdom. It's a topsy-turvy teaching because it's just about the dead opposite of the conventional wisdom of our days. That's why it's such a challenge. But there was another thing that these disciples needed to learn, and that was they needed to learn how to pray. They needed to learn how to pray. And that's why we come to the section in the Sermon on the Mount that we call the Lord's Prayer. That is probably not the best title for it. It's not the biblical title for it because John chapter 17 is a very detailed prayer that Jesus prayed. That probably is more accurately the Lord's Prayer, but we won't quibble on that. Now, when we look into this whole topic of prayer, I think that probably most of us would admit it's a bit of a mystery. In fact, I think some people have decided it's such a mystery, it doesn't make any sense at all, therefore forget it. Or some people have said the only time we really pray is when we've tried everything else, nothing works, and in sheer desperation we pray. So there are no atheists in foxholes, you know, even if they've been atheists up until then, when somebody's trying to shoot your head off, it's amazing how you believe in prayer. And so, you know, that, that's about as far as it goes for, for many many people. Well, what's the problem with prayer? Well, the sort of thing that I hear all the time is people would say to me, you know, the Bible says that God knows what we need and he will give us what we need. All right. And it says that if our prayer is going to be any good, we've got to pray according to God's will. So if God's already made his mind up and he knows what we need, what possible difference can us talking to him have on this thing? We can't change his mind. We can't twist his arm. So it's a waste of time. So I don't do it. <laughs> well, I can understand that, that thinking. It's very convenient as well. If you don't want to be bothered doing it, you can rationalize the thing and say, I just don't get it. Let me give you a different angle on prayer. This is the, the kind of stuff that you read in your Bible about prayer. The first thing is, is, that I want you to notice is this. The, the Bible says that there are times when we have a desire to pray, we have a desire to reach out to something or someone greater and grander than ourselves because we recognize we have needs that are just not being addressed, they're not, not being met. Maybe even desperation. And, and sometimes this sense of, of longing, this, this sense of unsatisfied desire, this sense of dissatisfaction and frustration at the dissatisfaction. Everybody, I guess, experiences this one way or another. Leads us sometimes to reach out to something or someone. But we don't know what to say. 
We don't know who we're talking to. We don't know where to go. Well, the Bible says this, that in situations like that, even if we've just started a relationship with the Lord, that his Holy Spirit can work in our inner longings, in our inner desires, and begin to stimulate them. And this is how it explains it. It says that who knows the mind of a man? Who knows what's going on in a person's mind? And the answer is only the spirit of that person really knows. In the same way, who knows the mind of God? The answer is only the spirit of God. But the believer is somebody in whom the spirit of God has come to dwell. He, knowing the mind of God, is able to work in our inarticulate longings and steer them in the right direction. All right, now pop that in the back of your mind. Then in addition to that, it says that Jesus, who died and rose again, ascended to the Father's right hand in a place of great authority. And there, what's he doing? Is he twiddling his thumbs? He's waiting for the whole mess to get sorted out. When the Father says, okay, go on, establish your kingdom now. Is he learning knitting? You know, what's he doing up there? And the answer is, he is interceding for us. Interceding for us. So put those two things together, all right? In our most inarticulate aspirations, the Holy Spirit who knows the mind of God is working, stimulating our praying, is being presented to Jesus at the Father's right hand. He perfects our prayers and presents them to the Father who is totally committed to his greater glory and our greatest good. And so in response to this, he begins to deal with our praying. Now, you've got a great big cycle here. What does it mean for us to pray? Well, what it means, looking at it this way, is that you and I are actually invited into the most intimate inner workings of the Holy Trinity. You say, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. Well, I can understand that too. Because I would find it very difficult to believe in a wonderful God if I could figure him out. There is a degree of huge mystery in this whole thing. But that is precisely what Scripture teaches. So we don't simply dismiss it and say, well, you know, I've thought about all this and all that and all that. And that doesn't make any sense. Look at, look at the bigger picture. And that is what the scriptures actually teach us about prayer. Now, if this, if this is a bit, you know, too much, you, you're struggling with this a little bit, let me give you a different picture, angle on prayer. There's, there's a great story in Genesis chapter 28 about Jacob, who was bad news, finally left home, and I'm sure everybody breathed a sigh of relief. It's gone. You know. Whew, it's gone. He's gone off on a mission. He does his first journey. There's nowhere to stay. And so he settles down for the night. Gets a nice, comfortable rock, and he makes it into a pillow. <laughs> when I read about that, I thought, yeah, I stayed in lots of motels like that. <laughs> and and uh, he, he has a, a troubled night. He has a dream. And in this dream, there's a ladder. And the ladder touches earth, and reaches heaven. Standing at the top of the ladder is the Lord himself. All right? Touches earth, reaches heaven, at the top is the Lord himself. 
And there are angels running up, and there are angels running down. <laughs> All right? Now, here's your picture for you. Ladder touching earth where he is, reaching heaven where the Lord is. Angels running up, angels running down. What are they running up with? Prayers? What are they coming down with? Answers? There's a picture for you. It's an application of this thing. It's one way of illustrating this picture. Now, if you are an audio learner, maybe you're taking this thing into your mind and you're trying to figure out the intimate inner workings of the Trinity. If you're a visual learner, you've got a nice picture of this ladder. Do you know what the reaction of Jacob was to this picture? His reaction to this picture was very simple. He said, wow, this is awesome. This is awesome. And then he says, surely the Lord is in this place. And here's the greater picture. What it means is at any point on this earth where you find yourself, there is a ladder touching that point that reaches into the heavens and the Lord is on the top of the ladder and where you are, it is possible for you to have a communication with him that he will respond to wherever you are at any given moment. And that's awesome. Surely the Lord is in this place. Now there's some pictures of prayer for you. Still a mystery. Now let's get to the Lord's Prayer. Three things I want you to notice about the Lord's Prayer. That's a surprise to you, I know. First of all, disciples pray in such a way that it does not become a performance, which is a strange thing to say, but that's exactly what Jesus talks about. Verse 5 of Matthew chapter 6. When you pray, not if you pray, (laughs) when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. There's the key. To be seen by men. In other words, it's quite right that they pray, but the way they're going about it shows that this is not a spiritual activity. This is a performance. We know the word performance is legitimate here because the Greek word that is translated to be seen by men is the word from which we get the English word theater. It's a huge performance they're putting on. Very simple statement Jesus is making. It is possible for us, even in our spiritual activities, in the community of believers, in actual fact, to make our spiritual activities a performance because we're more concerned about how we appear to the people around us than what is going on in our relationship with him. Wow. It's a great story of a young pianist making his debut in Carnegie Hall. Plays a great concert at the end, standing ovation. As his customary, he bows and then he goes off into the wings. And standing in the wings is the stage manager who says, give them a minute. They're giving you a standing ovation and go out and give them an encore. He said, I'm not going out. He said, you've got to go out. They're giving you a standing ovation. He said, there's one man who's not standing. I said, that's one man. The rest of the crowd are giving you a standing ovation. He said, that, that man's my teacher. He's not clapping. 
So the crowd, they think this is grave. They don't know what's going on. He knows. Billy Graham on one occasion was asked after he had preached before the royal family, what's it like to preach before the queen and the royal family? He said, it's a great honor, but you must remember every time I preach, I preach before the king of kings. When you think like that, whether you're a preacher, whether you're a worship leader, or whether you're a member of the congregation, when you think like that, you're not in danger of the mistake of the Pharisees. They mistake performance for piety. Jesus said, my disciples don't pray like that. He said, they don't pray like the pagans either. Goes on to talk about how the pagans pray here. (laughs) He said, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. They think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, etc., etc. How do pagans pray? Well, pagans pray because they have got some idea of some spirit out there. They don't know what these spirits are. They're not too sure what they're doing, but they don't like them and they're trying to placate them and they don't know what to say to them, so they keep on babbling incoherently and some people can start doing that. Just babbling incoherently and calling it prayer. Jesus said, my disciples don't do that. He said, my disciples know that the key thing about prayer is by getting yourself deep down in your heart into a relationship with the Lord where you're actually talking to him. Because you are hearing from him. That's how my disciples pray. They don't allow prayer to degenerate into a performance. All right, here's the second thing about prayer. Disciples pray in such a way that their focus is unmistakable. What is he going to say? This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's very straightforward. The focus is very, very sharp indeed. It's addressed to our Father. So this is a place for corporate prayer. Together we come even though deep down in the solitary place we pray as well. What matters is whether we're in the crowd or whether we are alone, we're making contact with God, we're not putting on a performance. And to whom do we pray? We pray to our Father in heaven. And what do we pray? We pray about his name being honored. We pray about his kingdom coming We pray about his will being done. (laughs) How many mentions of me? None. How many mentions of us? None. What's the focus? The focus is very, very clear indeed. It is a focus on the glory of God. Focus on the glory of God. (laughs) Now, notice where this starts. To whom is the prayer addressed? It is addressed to our Father in heaven. Here's a question for you. What is the most important aspect of prayer? What is the most important aspect of prayer? I I think that the way some, some of us go about it 
we get the impression that the most important aspect of prayer is that somehow we've got to work up some intensity and some enthusiasm and some emotional capital in this thing as if God in some way is reluctant and needs to be persuaded. I was in South Korea on one occasion speaking to groups of of, uh, students and before every session they they took me into a room with about a hundred students in it and they're all kneeling on a hard floor. This was in South Korea. And the South Korean church is a praying church. They, they, would, they would blow the average Western church mind the way they go about praying. And so they got me to kneel down on the hard floor with them. I wasn't very good at that. My old creaky knees were not too excited about it. Then they clapped hands on various parts of my anatomy and somebody rang a little bell. The moment they rang that little bell, the whole place erupted in sound. 100 South Koreans praying, everyone praying, everyone praying aloud, everybody praying aloud at the top of their voice. The cacophony of noise was unbelievable. And my interpreter whispered in my ear during the prayer, South Korean Christians suspect the Almighty is slightly hard of hearing. (laughs) No, he is not hard of hearing and needs our prayers cranking up and he is not reluctant and needs persuading. I I was at a a wedding on one occasion and the grandfather of the bride was asked to say a prayer before the beautiful hot meal that had been provided for us. By the time he finished, we sat down to a pretty mediocre cold meal (laughs) because he had worked his way through the Bible to every reference on marriage and weddings. Our prayers are not a matter of trying to persuade a reluctant God. Neither are they efforts to inform an ignorant God. Well, what are they? Our prayers are entry into the presence of God who invites us into his presence. And this is what he says. We are to pray to our Father. Now, one of the unique things about Jesus was that when he came and began to minister among people, and they watched him pray, this is one reason they asked him to teach them to pray, they watched him pray. And when they watched him pray and they heard him praying, he prayed to God in a very intimate way and called him Father. You know, I mean, what could be more intimate? Now, now don't, you know, if you had trouble with your dad, don't look at your troubled relationship with your dad and then balloon it up to divine size and get a picture of God, who's a reluctant, bad-tempered old alcoholic or whatever you think your dad was. That's not the way to do it. You look at the father as he's revealed in scripture as the loving, caring one. And we model our human fathering on him. We don't look at human fathering and balloon it up to get a picture of God. And the idea is that Jesus is teaching the disciples, you can approach God on an intimate basis and you can come boldly like a little child coming to his dad. But always remember this, that he is the father in heaven. So whilst you come as a little child to his dad, You've got the deepest respect 
for your father is the father in the heavens. When I was a little boy, we had a man came to our little church. He was a big, old, retired coal miner. And he was very well known in our circles because he'd been to London and he'd been to Buckingham Palace and he'd been introduced to the king and the king had pinned a medal on his chest. And it was a medal that was one of the highest awards for bravery by a civilian. And I said to him, little boy, what did you do? He said, well, I used to work in the coal mines. And he said, we used to get down in very, very small tunnels down there. And the working conditions were very, very difficult indeed. And he said, one day I was working down there with my men. And he said, I heard a creaking and a groaning and dust and stone began to fall. And I realized the roof was collapsing on us. And my men were going to be buried alive. But he said, I was a big man. And I was able to brace myself in the tunnel and I was able to take the weight of the collapsing wooden beams that we'd put in there to hold up the roof. And he said, I was able to hold up the roof just long enough for my men to crawl out and we got them all out alive. The king was very kind. He invited me down to Buckingham Palace and he thanked me. He gave me this medal. I said, what was it like being in Buckingham Palace and meeting a king? He said, I was frightened to death. I was frightened. This is a hero who was frightened to meet the king. He said, I didn't feel at home. I just wanted to get away and be in my little cottage overlooking the coal mines back home. But he said there was a young man standing next to the king and he was perfectly at home. And I thought, here am I, a big, big old man and I'm uncomfortable here. There's a young man and he's perfectly at home here. Then I realized he was the king's son and he belonged in the palace. And then he said, Stuart, always remember this. When you pray to your heavenly father, when you pray to your heavenly father, you belong there. But never lose a sense of majesty. There's the focus. That's who we pray to. Now, what are our concerns? Our concerns are, first of all, your name might be hallowed. I remember Jill telling me the story about one of the kids in her class in school in England. He was praying, Our Father who art in heaven, Harold be thy name. And that was an understandable mistake because at that time our prime minister was called Harold Wilson. And Harold Wilson used to get confused between himself and the Almighty <laughs> at times. But it doesn't say Harold be thy name, hallowed. What's hallowed mean? How many times have we prayed it? Hallowed be thy name. <laughs> What's Halloween? Halloween is the evening before All Hallows Day. What is All Hallows Day? A commemoration of the saints. What have saints and hallow got to do with each other? Hallowed means holy or a set-apart one or a saint. What does hallows mean? I want your name to be regarded as holy. What's so great about his name? His name, demonstrated to us in many, many ways, is descriptive of who he is. 
What is my focus? Oh, Father, Heavenly Father, I come before you and I tell you what really bothers me. This world in which I live, you are not regarded the way you ought to be regarded and it tears me up. And I want to see people recognizing you for who you are. That's the focus. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. The kingdom has come. The rule of God has come in Christ, but it hasn't fully come. There are regions in which I live and move and have my being where God is clearly not ruled. He is ignored. He is blasphemed. The only time they mention his name is in a curse. It tears me up, God. No, Father, I am praying. I'm praying about your glory, which is so lacking in our world, and the recognition of it. I want your name to be honored, and I want your kingdom to fully come. And I want your will to be done on earth the way it's done in heaven. Now, that only makes sense when you know how it's done in heaven. How is his will, how are his purposes worked out in heaven? Well, here's an example. We know that in heaven, there's an archangel called Gabriel. I guess Gabriel kind of likes it up there. It's a pretty good job he's got. One day God said to him, I want you to go down to earth. (laughs) I can imagine Gabriel saying, I don't like it down there. (laughs) What, What do you want me to do? I want you to go to Nazareth. That is the pit. Everybody knows Nazareth is a pitch. Why do you want me to go there? I want you to talk to a young woman. I don't talk to young women. I don't like them. What am I supposed to say to her? You're supposed to tell her some news she doesn't want to hear. Great. Great. So you want me to leave my great number here? You want me to go down there? I don't like it. You want me to go to the absolute pits? You want me to talk to people I don't like? And you want me to tell them stuff they don't want to hear? Great. Is that how he reacted? No. What did he do? When he was told to go, he went. And he went immediately. And he went joyfully. And he did it thoroughly. And that's how his will was done in heaven. This is what I want to see. I want to see it done down here like it is up there. Starting with me. This is how you pray. You don't pray, you know, as a performance. You don't pray just babbling a lot of incoherent words. This is how you pray. Then, of course, you can get into your personal needs. But the important thing about this is when you begin to address your personal needs, it isn't just my daily bread and my trespasses, etc. It's ours. So we pray for each other. Pray for, pray for each other. And what we do is we look at all the areas of our practical lives and we bring them before the Lord and relate them to him. So what does he say? Give us this day our daily bread. Practical, physical needs. What else did he say? Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. What's that? Relational needs. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What's that? Spiritual needs. And about covers it, doesn't it? Our physical needs, our relational needs, our spiritual needs. And we bring them all before the Lord and we relate 
them to him. We pray for our daily bread. Literally, the situation when Jesus lived was this. Guys would get a day's work. At the end of the day, they paid their day's wages. If they've had a day's work, they've got a day's wages. If they've got a day's wages, they've got enough money to buy bread for the next day. That was how they lived, hand to mouth. So the prayer is very simple. We're just asking, Lord, that our physical needs will be met so that we have enough. So that we have enough. It's a bit different, isn't it, now? Not only that, we want to pray about our relational needs. Now, this, this is difficult, this one. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That almost sounds, in fact, a verse that explains it a little further on in uh, verses 14 and 15, makes it look as if being forgiven is dependent on us forgiving. Well, there's a problem with that because the scriptures teach in the broader picture that our salvation is not dependent on what we do. We don't earn our salvation. So in other words, forgiveness is not a meritorious response to the fact that we have been very forgiving people. But be careful here. When Jesus said the kingdom has arrived, the first thing he said after that was repent. What does that mean? Change your mind. About what? About God and about yourself. And your relationship to God. And be willing to have him change your attitude. Repent. That's part of it. Okay? Just supposing I am in a situation where people have done things to me and I have not been willing to forgive them. But then I'm reminded of the fact of what I have done to God. And incredibly, he has forgiven me. Now, I'm beginning to change my mind because I have been thinking of how enormous is that thing they did to me that I won't forgive. And I've been thinking, what I did to God was nothing much. What's he so bent out of shape about? But now I'm beginning to realize the enormity of what I did to him and the wonder of his forgiveness and in comparison, I look at what they did to me, it's nothing compared to what I did to him. So I'm changing my mind. I'm changing my mind about the enormity of my sin towards God and of my unforgiving attitude to them. And I repent of both. And it's repentance that opens the door to forgiveness. That's what we need to pray about. We need to pray about our physical needs. We need to pray about our relational needs. And then finally, we need to pray about our spiritual needs. Our spiritual needs are, in a nutshell, this. We understand that there is an enormous Evidence for the fact of a great and loving and wonderful God in our world. And at the same time, there is evidence for a malevolent evil force in our world. 
They're both there. And there's an enormous struggle going on between the two. And you and I live right in the middle of it. Because the arena of this struggle is where we live. That means if we're not careful, we can get ourselves chewed up. And here's the strange thing about it. God is God and the evil one is not. The evil one is potentially defeated already. Jesus already did it. If you like, he's dead, but he won't lie down. He's defeated. God's got him on a chain, but it's a short leash. But he's still around. And he's a force to be reckoned with. Why in the world does God let him still operate? Because he knows that his people just need a little pressure at times. Because if they don't have a little pressure at times... Guess what? They can get very casual. They can get very laid back. They can take it easy. And they become flabby. So he allows us just enough pressure, just enough testing, not to solicit us to evil. God would never do that. But he allows us enough to make sure that there is enough to keep us on our toes and on our knees. So what's our prayer? Our prayer is, Lord, this tempting thing is a solicitation to evil. You don't do that. I know you don't do that. But you do allow testings which give us an opportunity to go right. And it's funny. One set of circumstances can become a solicitation to evil to go wrong or an opportunity to do right. It's amazing. Same thing. It's your response that makes the difference. Now, our prayer is, God, I know how weak and vulnerable I am. I know how powerful the enemy of my soul really is. So I ask you, Lord, if you're going to lead me into a testing, (laughs) please, please make sure that that evil one doesn't get his teeth into me and rip me apart. Lead us not into testing, but deliver us out of the clutches of the evil one. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There is no testing that has come your way that is not common to man, but God is faithful. Even in the testing, God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted above your ability to cope but will with the testing also make a way of escape. Not so that you can get out of it, but so that you can stand up strong and faithful in it. That never made much sense to me until a friend of mine called Alan Redpath, a great preacher in England, explained it to me one day. He said, if you have got an engine that is driven by steam... You need a boiler. And the key to that boiler is you've got to build up pressure, enough pressure to drive the wheels and the cogs and the machinery. He said, if you get too much pressure, (laughs) it'll blow the machine up. But if you don't have enough pressure, it won't drive it. So he said, we put a thing on it called a safety valve. 
And the safety valve makes sure it's set so that you won't get too much pressure and blow the machine up. But it also makes sure you do get enough pressure so the thing drives and guards your safety valve. No temptation has come your way that isn't common to all people. But God is faithful. Won't allow you to be tempted above your ability, but will, with the way of tempting, testing, make a way of escape. I had some good friends down in the delta of Mississippi. They used to grow cotton on a big plantation. Then that business the bottom fell out of that. So they, they tried to grow rice. That didn't work. And somebody hit on a good idea. They got a lot of heavy loam soil. They figured if they dig, dug out deep into it, they could fill it with water and it would be watertight and the water would sit there. So they dug big tanks and they began to breed catfish. Catfish. And they fed the catfish. And then they were so successful that they built a big factory to process the, the catfish. And tankers would come in and suck in the catfish and into big tankers they'd go and they'd take them to the factory and they'd spew it all out. And the, the poor old catfish were taken in the machine and within half an hour they were packaged and ready for shipping. Fresh catfish. That's where your ca- fresh catfish comes from. Oof. But then they had a problem. Do you know what they discovered? <laughs> they discovered that the catfish kind of liked it because they were being forced fed. And all the food was coming. They were just gorging and gorging and gorging and gorging. And the quality of meat was declining and declining and declining. And they didn't know what to do because they were just getting too lazy. And then somebody hit on a good idea. Do you know what they did? They put one baby barracuda in each tank (laughs) and it worked wonders this baby barracuda stirred things up a little bit and the old catfish got a little bit disturbed with this thing but do you know what it did for them it made better meat out of them and that's what your heavenly father is doing and that's how we pray That's how we pray. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, you've told us how to pray. You've told us how not to pray. You've given us some ideas what to pray. There's only one thing needs to be done now. And we need to do it. So we ask that your word coming to us will not quickly dissipate. But we ask that it will find a warm, receptive place in our hearts and minds. And we will be blessed because we do what we know. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.